Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. It is Monday, June 5th, 2017, and we are halfway through this year's edition of Roland Garros. Matches are getting underway as we speak, so we're recording at the same time the first matches are getting going. So we have a lot to talk about this week, Carl. Hello to my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for joining us, and let's get right to it. We've talked a lot the last few weeks about how both the men's and the women's draws are, are more up in the air than they have been in past years, especially the women's, and we'll get there. But let's start with the men this week. Surprisingly, we have, have the top four men coasting pretty much through this far. I mean, Djokovic had a scare against Diego Schwartzman. Murray had a scare against Martin Clizan. But things feel kind of normal on the men's side. And Carl, you've talked about this before, that, that the big four or the big five, counting Vavrinka, they tend to round into form. They tend to, to maybe have some hiccups early in the draw, but they, they tend to figure out how to get there for the second week. So do you see that happening this week, even with some of the hiccups that, that um, Murray and Djokovic have suffered thus far? Yeah, there's always a risk in saying I do, and then having the events of the next few hours undo that. But it, it does feel like that's happening or will, will continue to happen or could continue to happen, partly because for most of them, the draws still look pretty open until they meet each other. Djokovic facing team, that, that could be tough, although it certainly wasn't for him in Rome or in other past meetings. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think people say winning a Grand Slam can be the biggest test in tennis, but a draw can also open up, especially for a favorite who's not going to get a top 25 opponent pretty much in the first few rounds. And meanwhile, the the players who could seem dangerous in those rounds might lose before they reach them. Whereas in a Masters, where you have all the same top 50 or 60 players, but none of the next 50 or 60 who could interfere, you, you tend to have a more compressed draw. You often have to do it in just a week, usually in just a week. And it's rare that you would have such an easy time of the first three or four matches. You also have the advantage in Grand Slams of best of five. So in in a Masters, maybe Diego Schwartzman winning the first set 7-5 would be scary against Djokovic. Certainly winning a second set would have ended the match. But I was never too worried for Djokovic as much as you and I love Schwartzman. And he cruised in those last two sets. It was, it was one of the least close five-set matches I've ever seen, all, all told. So... Yeah, I could, could very well see the top four seeds in the semis. Now, I, I want to talk a little more about the draw specifically, but before we get there, let, let's digress a bit on this best of five, best of three issue. As you mentioned, if if it had been best of three, then we would see Djokovic out already to Diego Schwartzman. But, of course, I, I saw someone on Twitter put it this way, that, that you run the race differently depending on where the finish line is. And that's obviously the case. Uh, do you think that, if it had been best of three, we would have seen a big upset like Schwartzman over Djokovic? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think you would say to the extent that someone might have gotten tight and played differently, it'd be a lot more likely to be Schwartzman with the opportunity to knock out you know, 12-time slam winner defending champ than it would have been Djokovic. On the other hand, in the end of the two sets he lost, knowing that, yes, he wasn't going to be straight out eliminated by losing two sets, but it certainly wouldn't help his chances. Djokovic was the one who was who was choking to the extent someone was choking. So it could be that the the benefit of best of five is more in the 
the just incredible mental and physical endurance and stamina that the best players have to go to go long in matches more so than that they are managing the match. Like I, I don't really see any benefit to Djokovic of running the race in a way that he has to play five sets. And, and you did some research yourself that confirms what what most people think, which is that time on court is a negative signal, whether it's actually causing negative results for players later in tournaments where they go long early in tournaments, or it's just telling us something bad about their form. Either way, it's not a good thing to spend a lot of time on court. So uh, yeah, I still, it's probably slightly less likely that Schwartzman pulls it off, pulls off winning two of the first three sets if Djokovic has that much at stake. But I don't think that's the, the full picture. I don't think any top player is thinking, oh, I can afford to lose a couple of sets and still come back to win. Yeah, it, it does happen occasionally, but I would I would tend to agree with you there. Uh, now, since you mentioned my research from this past week on time on court, Pablo Carreño Busta is into the quarterfinals. He beat Milos Raonic in in a really lengthy match, which which had its share of uh, pressure moments that he didn't live up to. I think he he failed to serve it out at five four in the final set, if I remember right, and he eventually pulled it out. I think eight six in the fifth. And his reward, of course, is playing Rafael Nadal. And I bring this up in the context of time on court because that Carina Busta Ronich match went over four hours. One of the actually pretty few matches this year that have passed the four hour mark. And he plays Nadal, who, apart from being freaking Rafael Nadal, has played well even for him, just destroying Nicolas Basilevili, six love, six one, six love, and then having another easy match yesterday. He's he's playing even better than you would have expected Rafa to early in the, um, coming into the tournament rather. So with Carreño Busta, you wouldn't favor him in the first place. And now he's coming off this four hour, four hour win, which could mean that he's playing a little below his normal level, or it could mean he's just going to be tired. Um, Do you think Carreño Busta has any chance at all against Nadal in the quarterfinals? I think his only chance is Rafa getting injured. I'm thinking of an Australian Open quarterfinal, I think in 2011, where Rafa had won uh, the three previous majors, and he just came up injured against Ferrer, and I don't think anyone thought Ferrer would win that match, and it was an ugly match to watch in the end, and Rafa played it all the way through. That's that's just about the only scenario. I, I don't even expect Karina Busta to win a set or, or come particularly close. And I don't think it's it's just because he's tired. I mean, he, he doesn't really bring much that could threaten Rafa on clay. I think sort of like Rafa's previous opponent, Bautista Agut, another Spaniard, Cranio Busta against almost anyone else could play, could neutralize most balls and eventually win some rallies from doing it. But Rafa with a neutral ball on clay is just such a dominant force. And even if he doesn't win every point, and he certainly doesn't, it's rare for him to lose two more points than his opponent in a game, whether his opponent is serving or not. Maybe if it were Raonic and Raonic were going to get some of those easy points on his serve, that would be different. Krenjabus is not going to do that nearly as much. I just don't see him troubling Rafa. I think this is going to end up being one of Rafa's easiest ever paths to a semi at a Grand Slam, including the French Open, where he's been so dominant. What, what do you think? I, I agree with you. And it reminds me a little bit of Nadal's match against, again, Diego Schwartzman back in Monte Carlo. 
which ended up being a, a relatively close match. I think it was four and four in favor of Nadal. But Schwartzman is is kind of the apotheosis of what someone like Carreño Busta or Bautista Agu could hope to achieve against Nadal. And that sounds a little backwards because Carreño Busta and Bautista Agu have accomplished more in their careers than Schwartzman has. But in terms of keeping pace with Nadal, you've got to have something to really hurt him. And your typical clay court specialist, they don't have the weapons to hurt him. All they can do is, is stay on court, construct points well, and that works against most players on tour. But you just can't do that against Rafa. It's not going to happen. And, and David Ferrer learned that again and again and again and again. And these guys are, in a sense, the heir to Ferrer. Um, they're, they don't have the big weapons. They're managing to achieve quite a lot in their careers without it. And I think certainly Carreño Busta, even though it's we people have been expecting big things from him for a long time, and he's been disappointing in the sense that he hasn't gotten there yet. He is he's on that path. Like we could see him in his early thirties, looking a bit like Ferrer in his early thirties, like a threat on hard courts, but really dangerous at the the two fifties and five hundreds on clay, making the occasional deep run at the clay court um, Masters 1000s. But getting back to Rafa, they're just not at the same level. And the fact that they play the same kind of style, this is something we've talked about, Carl. I'm not sure if it's it's something to go into deeper today. But the fact that if you you are going to score an upset, it helps to have different styles. Like having the same style as the guy you're hoping to upset, you're just going to be eaten alive. And I think that's the case with Carreño Busta and Batista Agu against Nadal. Yeah, although, you know, I, I I absolutely agree. I think Ferrer sometimes doesn't get enough credit for how he was able to play a different style against Rafa eventually, like realize that that was what he needed to do. I'm, I'm trying as I speak to pull up his, um, his clay head-to-head, but I know, especially sort of in the early 2010s when he was... Um, when he was playing Rafa often on clay and, and they had some pretty good matches that he at least played him close a couple of times. He beat him in Monte Carlo in 2014 and, you know, won some sets off him in other clay matches, which, which doesn't sound like much, but considering Rafa hasn't come close to dropping one here can be. And what he did was he did play a different style. He was pretty aggressive. He tried to dictate with his forehand. He doesn't have a big enough forehand to do that consistently, but he came close to beating Rafa or even beat him a couple of times playing that way. I don't expect to see Cranio Busta come close, but I would like to see him at least show that kind of tactical flexibility and say, you know what, I'm okay to get blown out if I'm doing it in a way that maximizes my chances to win, because just about any pro could get hot enough on his forehand to at least win a spell of games against Nadal. It's just nearly impossible to do it consistently for three out of five sets or even two out of three sets. Do you think that Cranio Busta has those weapons to maybe take a set from Rafa? Well, so I think that we don't normally think of him in the same class as, let's say, Del Potro or Tsonga or other players who just have enormous forehands. I think it's just that he tends to be more conservative with his forehand because he wouldn't make a high enough percentage if he were hitting it that big. So I think it's just a style we would never see from him. But do I think he he can like let loose on forehands? Uh, and make some winners. I, I do. I just think he would. He would over the course of a match, we would we would see some terrible unforced error stats from him. But it could be enough to at least you know make him competitive in a set, and then I guess 
if he somehow steals a set, who knows? But yeah, it, it, there's no strategy here that's going to be a particularly winning one. It just seems like that's the one that would give him the best chance. Yeah, and that that's something that I, I think must be very difficult for players who have had as much success as someone like Karenia Busta. Because we've talked about this a couple times before, Carl, that the way to, to upset a top guy who you're such an underdog against is often to play in a way that you're not that comfortable with. Like, you should be hyper-aggressive, you need to take all those chances, and that's not the way Karenia Busta plays, or Bautista Agu, or a lot of these guys. Certainly Ferrer, and you mentioned that he did manage to get out of his comfort zone there, but it, it's odd for someone who goes into most matches with the expectation of winning them the way that they normally play, to tell them that you know if you're going to have a chance against this guy, first of all, you have to accept that you don't have much of a chance. And if you are going to turn that around, then you're going to have to do something that you normally don't do, that maybe even wouldn't work as regularly as the stuff that, that you normally win with. And that must be very difficult for someone who who plays in such a different style as Karina Busta does. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking in particular of Ferrer's final at the French Open in 2013, and he got blown out, but he did it playing a pretty aggressive style, and I, I he, he wasn't the most loquacious in press conferences, but reading his body language and just, just watching his game, it felt like he knew after every forehand he missed that it, it was the right thing to do, but it still felt like the wrong thing to do, and it was not his style to play that way. But um, but he committed to it, which was nice to see, even though it's not a match most people remember as a particularly fun one to watch. So let's talk about the draw in general, and it's particularly how this is shaped up for Rafa. We talked about this going into the tournament, that a lot of the the players who would potentially make trouble for Nadal ended up in other parts of the draw, and that has continued to be the case right up to that Carreño Busta match, because you said last week you didn't think Ronich would get far enough for a quarterfinal against Nadal, and it turned out you were right, although very, very narrowly, and a lot of the other guys who could have just serve-botted their way to upsetting Nadal are, ended up in the top half, they're mostly out of the draw, like Isner and Kyrgios. Uh, a couple guys who who do fit that bill, like Karen Kachanov, um, Kevin Anderson, Marin Cilic, they're the ones who fit that profile and are still in the draw, but they're all in the top half. They're probably not going to make it to the final. And the story's really told by what my forecast says for Nadal's chances the rest of the way. He's got a, a 97.3% chance of beating Carreño Busta and reaching the semifinals, which, if anything, sounds conservative. And then it drops to 58%. To reach the final, so he's got maybe a two and three chance of beating Djokovic, according to my model. But then, if he or did, team, or Throw team in there, or team, of course, uh, we can talk about that in a minute. And if he reaches the final, then he's got something like an eighty percent chance of winning. Because looking at the the blend of guys in the top half, they're they're not nearly as competitive as as Djokovic or I guess possibly team would be in the semis, especially if. If Murray loses, I mean, we've talked a lot about Murray's weakness on clay, but according to my model, according to the longer term algorithm, he's still the strongest guy. He played very competitively against Nadal on clay last year, and compared to the rest of the top half, he's he might be the only threat. Carl, how do how do you see that shaping up? Do do you think that there there is a potential danger to Nadal lurking in the top half for the potential final? Well, it's it's obvious enough that you're probably setting me up for this, but it, it feels like it should be Vavrinka. I don't think your algorithm agrees, but it, 
certainly being undefeated in Grand Slam finals, having so many great results when he gets to the second week of majors, and certainly being comfortable playing the style we just talked about that can be effective against Nadal on clay. Vavrinka hasn't had that much success against him on clay, but it it would I I don't think it would be an enormous shock if he came out and kind of as he did in the 2015 French Open final against Djokovic, who was looking pretty great that year. Uh, he he just hit him off the court. Vavrinka can do that to anyone, including Nadal. I, I've I've seen some of his matches here and also in the warm up tournament in Geneva and. It's that phenomenon where he gets time on the ball, he can get in position to hit it, and feels like no matter how far back in the court he is, he can place a winner almost anywhere. Now, he's going to miss a lot, for sure, and it wouldn't surprise me if he misses so much that he ends up being blown out, but I would I would give him probably a better chance than your algorithm would against Rafa in a final. Yeah, that certainly seems... Um seems plausible, and that matches up very well to what we were talking about with Kirinia Busta, is that this, the style that Vavrinka wins with is the style that, that most of these clay court guys are unwilling to play. And it is a bit strange that Vavrinka has been undefeated, I think, in Grand Slam Finals, because it, it feels like the kind of style that is going to end up getting you blown out sometimes. So maybe if Vavrinka were playing you know, 10 Grand Slam finals, he might end up 7-3 and three or something in the longer term. But those seven, he would look amazing. <laughs> he would look like the one guy who could beat his opponent on that particular day. So, yeah, look, looking at the eight guys left in the top half, Vavrinka uh, seems like the one most likely to come out and, and play well enough to beat Nadal on the day. The, the question, as always, especially since we're only in the fourth round in the top half, that fourth round is being played probably starting in an hour or two, on Monday, um, is if Vavrinka will even get there. He has to beat Gil Malfi's today against the French crowd, um, and probably Marin Cilic, or maybe a hot Kevin Anderson in the round after that. Guys who he would normally beat, but you know maybe in a, in a five-setter, having to deal with those serves for that length of time could go either way. Um, so, Carl, looking at those eight names in the top half, do you see a dark horse there, someone who could surprise us and, and land in the final? I think Chilich is the one. I mean, I, I've described him before as somewhat of a poor man's, I don't like the expression poor man's, but somewhat of a weaker version of Vavrinka that he could get hot and make a run. And it's it probably being based too heavily on his run at the 2014 U.S. Open. But on the other hand, goddamn what a run that was. I mean, he didn't just beat, I think it was three top 10 players in the last three rounds, but he he ran away with the last eight sets or so that he played. I, I don't expect him to do it. I'd be much more surprised if he got to the final than if Vavrinka did. But considering just what a questionable number one Murray looks like now, even though he's he survived to this stage and, and has a somewhat open draw to the semis, I, I just I, I could certainly see whoever emerges from the Vavrinka Chilich part of that draw making it to the final. So let's let's talk just briefly about a few of the matches matchups coming up. So today we have Murray Kachanov. Um, Kachanov is the probably the biggest question mark in the draw since he's he's young, making making his first Slam fourth round appearance. Um, do you think that Kachanov has a chance today against Murray? Absolutely. Do you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I hate looking at my models forecast, which gives Kachanov a three point seven percent chance. I haven't looked up the betting odds on that, but. But I'm uh, I'm taking a mulligan on that one. My my uh, forecast does not know what to do with someone with as little time on clay courts as Kachanov has. Um, 
But into the quarterfinals, Team Djokovic, you mentioned that earlier, can't count team out, but of course Djokovic just thumped him a couple weeks ago in Rome, love and one. Um, But you think the team has a chance against Djokovic in the quarters? Yeah, I mean, we talked, I think, last week about this question, and maybe this is a case where the matchup overrides all the other signals we have. But we certainly have a lot of signals that team is the second or third best player on clay now. And Djokovic has had some shakiness in just about every match, even though other than that Schwartzman match, he hasn't really, you wouldn't really say been challenged particularly, whereas team's been cruising. So I... I don't favor team in that match, but yeah, I'd give him probably between a 30 and 40% chance of winning. And if we get to Nadal Djokovic, that's a, a pretty conservative if, uh, that big semifinal, what what do you see as the odds there? It looks like I've got it about, uh, about 70-30 or so in favor of Nadal. Do you think that's about right? I think it's a little high. I think it is, it, it, when we were recording maybe a month or two before the French Open, it felt to me like if they met, Djokovic was the favorite just because of that matchup and how well it had been going for him. That obviously reversed in Madrid where Nadal straight-setted him in the semis. But it was notable to me that the end of that match, it felt like if Djokovic had gotten the break when Nadal was serving for the second set and leveled that set, that he could have come back, won the set, and won the match. So I, I think people saw that as a route, but it... There are also sometimes those routes where the very, if the very end goes differently, it could completely change the match because of the great scoring system of tennis where you, got, you have to win that last game and that last point. Anyway, I could certainly see Djokovic coming into form in that match during the match, even losing the first set but coming back to win. So I think 70-30 is a little aggressive, as good as Rafa's look, just because of how good Djokovic is and how good he's been in that matchup in the last few years. I'd put it probably more at 60-40. I know that's not a big difference after that much wind-up, but I think it, it makes a big difference in terms of not counting Rafa as the definite champ yet, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, one last thing before we switch over to the women is Djokovic has a new coach, of course, the legendary Andre Agassi in his camp. Uh, of all of the irrelevant stats you could dream up for a Djokovic-Nadal matchup, I, I checked, and Agassi led the career head-to-head with Carlos Moya 3-1. to one. So in the super coach, coach department, Djokovic has a small edge. Um, have you noticed anything different from Djokovic this week uh, with Andre Agassi in his camp? Do you think that's benefited him so far? I haven't seen much different in game style. He did seem in that Schwartzman match to be incredibly calm, considering the circumstances. He, I think he broke <laughs> he broke character at some point and, and expressed his displeasure with his racket. But in general, would expect him maybe to verge more into the Andy Murray territory in a moment like that of muttering to himself and, and just showing tons of frustration and Agassi was pretty good about whatever just happened in the previous point, walking up to the line and playing the next one and playing it quickly if he was serving. And Djokovic, to me, showed a little bit of that in that match. But yeah, I can't say that game style I saw much different. And you wouldn't really expect it, given that part of the appeal of that pairing is just how similar their game style is. What what Djokovic would need, if anything, on his game is just to play his, his same game better. And so far, that hasn't particularly been the case, but he still has time to round into that top form. Now I lied. One more thing since since you kind of set me up for it. Um, Ag- you said Agassi was pretty good about 
about going up to the line and playing the next point, and you use the word quickly, which does not apply so much to Novak Djokovic. I think he got a time violation and then a loss of a first serve uh, in the Schwarzman match because of because he was taking too long, and that was with umpire Carlos Ramos. And then in Nadal's match yesterday, uh, Carlos Ramos got into another spat. Nadal apparently threatened that Ramos would never referee another one of his matches. Um, similar to what happened with Carlos Bernardes in the past. Uh, and it all comes down to the, the time violations. And we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago when the next-gen finals rules came out, that there's going to be a test for the shot clock. Um, and it's a little different at slams because there, I think there's a, the 20-second time limit instead of the 25-second time limit, which is, of course, extremely relevant because these time violations are coming at, like, 37 seconds, not anywhere close to 20 or 25 um, but Carl, do you think that that should be called more aggressively or do you think the fans like Rafa and Djokovic just as slow as they are? I absolutely think it should be called more aggressively. I think there's somewhat of a selective sample because the diehard fans have accepted what tennis has become, at least when certain players play. And we're not really you know, going to hear as much from the fans who've just given up on it. But I've heard from commentators on TV who certainly sense the frustration and just sense that it's a less exciting match. It's a worse product when there's a smaller percentage of the time that's being spent playing the thing that they're there to play. It's it's so absurd to me how worked up players get about this, that often being warned that they might be warned in an official capacity is enough to set them off. Even losing a first serve, we're talking about going from I guess, around a 70% chance to around a 55% chance of winning a point. So it's much less than actually losing a point. And this is usually after they have repeatedly violated the rule. I mean, we're talking maybe most of their service points at that point, they went over the 20-second limit that set at slam. So it, it's, it's a very disproportionately small penalty and such a disproportionately large reaction from so many players. And fans often, especially in the crowd, sort of respond in cue to the player's response. So it seems like they're being just incredibly unfairly dealt with when it's a real slap on the wrist. I, I prefer to call it a serve clock instead of a, a shot clock, and I, I am very interested in seeing what happens with that in the next-gen finals because I think, as I said when we talked about it before, it seems like someone who's in their young 20s as opposed to in their young 30s like Rafa and Djokovic should be more willing to to adapt. And I understand why it's tougher for older players and why they probably gain a lot from getting a longer break between points. In Djokovic's case in particular, I'm disappointed because there was evidence that he had been getting faster and had had cut down on that excessive ball bouncing. And one of the signs that's hardly scientific, but nonetheless hard to miss about his shakier play recently is that it seems like the old ball bouncing that accompanied some serve yips in the past is is back, and, and that's not fun to watch as a fan. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how that, that serve clock plays out. I, I do like the nomenclature there, because I call it a serve clock instead of a shot clock. I, in the past, I've been against it just because it, it seems like such a distraction, and I'm curious to see how it plays out in practice. But I think we do need something, and a big part of the problem is that as you point out, it's almost never getting called. I remember a few years ago, you and maybe one of your Wall Street Journal colleagues went through a bunch of matches with a shot, with a stopwatch rather, and and discovered that you know, at some large percentage of of points, Nadal or Djokovic was was going over the limit, 
and often when they do finally get called, it's when it's way, way, way over the limit. So, you know, 27 seconds is fine, but 37 seconds is where the umpire finally draws the line. But where that normally happens is on a really key point. Like this happened with Laura Siegemann in Stuttgart, one of her matches there, I believe, where Siegemann is one of the slowest players on the WTA Tour. I wouldn't be surprised if she's at, at 30 seconds in a large proportion of her points. But she finally got called... Uh, for a time violation at a really big moment. I think it was the end of a third set. And by that point, she was at 35 seconds, way too far over. But it does kind of seem unfair all around. You should, if the rule is there, you should be getting called for it as soon as you, as soon as you violate it, not when you really, really, really violate it. But if, you, if the umpires do wait until players have really violated it, then they're doing it at a point where they can be maybe even rightly accused of interfering with the match. So it, it, it's strange, and it put, the way that the rule is enforced now puts everyone in a bad position, and structurally there needs to be a better way. I, I hope the serve clock is the solution. Yeah, and you know, I we did that stopwatch thing, but now TV broadcasters and another sign that TV sees it as a problem, even if fans at, in the stadium don't, they often will give that average time between points stat, and it, and it really is un, unusual for a player to not often go over, and even usually be going over, especially at the slams where twenty seconds is is a is a tough limit on the men's side. I think it's it's the standard on the women's side throughout the year. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting, as you point out, that that shows up on broadcasts because, in a way, it's, it's kind of um, poking the umpire in the eye. Like it, it's showing them up for not doing their job to see a clock ticking away at 30 plus seconds on a point when you know the rule is something else. Because I think back to the, some of the controversies in baseball about showing the strike zone on television because there's all these fights with the, the umpires' union that not releasing data that could show that some umpires are better than others, um, not showing the public instances where umpires have screwed up. So you have to be really careful when you're showing a baseball strike zone graphic if you show a pitch that you know is called a strike but was way really far out of the strike zone. So I think that's always been been resolved in baseball in the direction of not showing up the umpire. Uh, but in tennis, that doesn't seem to even be a consideration. Everyone's okay with with showing the world that the rule is being broken and nothing's happening. And that can't be good. You called it earlier potentially a distraction to have the clock running on court. And to me, if there's a distraction from dead time, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I also think that the best case scenario, which may not be the scenario that we see, is that eventually it becomes less of a distraction because players are just routinely beating the clock and and not even coming close. So to me, that's that's sort of a win-win. Either it's something for fans to focus on during time when nothing else really of interest is happening, or everybody kind of forgets about it because it does its job. Yeah, I hope that's the case because I'm not concerned about it being a distraction in sort of a, a, a vague sense, but in the very specific sense that when some, when a deadline is coming up in any sporting event, the crowd makes noise, even if they're not trying to. So if you have a shot clock or serve clock rather counting down, let's say from 25, it gets to three, two, one. And even it doesn't matter how many times Maria Chichak has told you to, to close your mouths. Um, some people are still going to be murmuring, hopefully not counting down. But when the crowd makes too much noise, of course, in tennis, that gives the player an excuse not to continue playing. So 
it's sort of contradictory in that sense, that if you, you give the crowd something to make noise about, then it, it means there's more time between points. So I, I hope there's a way to solve that problem, and I'm very curious to see how the next-gen finals implements it. Um, but speaking of deadlines and clocks and all of that, we, we do have a limited time to record this episode, and we have a lot to talk about on the women's side. Let's start off with a match underway right now. Um, the fourth round, Simona Halep, Carlos Suarez Navarro. Halep is... Uh, by a long shot, the favorite remaining in the women's draw. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, interestingly, she just barely led the head-to-head against Suarez Navarro coming into this match, I think six to five in their careers, going all the way back to 2010 when Halep was quite young. And the the counterbalance to that is that Suarez Navarro had never lost to her on clay. So I think in their in their three play the three times they've played on clay, Suarez Navarro is undefeated. But today Halep is up six one now, up a break one love in the second set. So we could see an end to that streak. Um, Carl, I know you are you're behind Svitolina here. Uh, if Svitolina comes through, she's also playing and surprisingly down a break to Petra Martic. But if they end up playing each other in the quarterfinals, do you see Svitolina uh, beating Halep again? I think, you know, it may have the very strong recency effect of Halep looking really strong right now and Svitolina not, and it being easier to see Halep in that match than not. But I I, I think that's probably a 50-50 match if they both get there, although we are seeing to some extent something we just talked about on the men's side, the potential of a great player who had some shakiness, mostly in terms of fitness as opposed to form, and Halep coming into a tournament and then playing her way perhaps out of that uh, that shakiness. She does not look at all hampered now, and that's one of the, the beauties of a two-week format of a major is that a player can have days off and potentially easy matches early on, and if they can get through all that, then feel much better. I think hardly any player ever feels 100% physically uh, fit and, and healthy, but maybe she's coming closer to that now. So so that makes her, I think, fully worthy of that favorite status, whereas coming into the tournament, it seemed strange to me, given that we weren't even sure she was going to enter. So I, I, you know, out of sentimentality, I guess, I'm going to stick to my Svitolina pick, and she did beat Halep in the Rome final, but I certainly wouldn't favor Svitolina in that match. I'm not sure I would favor Halep. Yeah, you're right to point out that Halep has has shown almost no sign of the injury this week. Uh, and keeping in mind it's now two weeks ago that Svitolina Halep final, I mean, Halep was hurting then. I remember the, the initial announcement from the someone in the Romanian Federation said that Halep would need three full days off, um, and Halep was a little shaky in the couple of days before she ultimately decided to play. But even though it is, I, I believe, a torn ligament in her ankle, something pretty serious, um, she's she seems fine. I mean, she's, she's playing fine, and obviously she's out of the gates pretty strongly today against Suarez Navarro, so I hope that's the case. And if she's healthy, I would I would favor her pretty strongly, since, as you point out, Svitolina has, has struggled so far this week, and despite some of her success this year, I'm not totally sold on her as someone who can win consistently win big matches on clay. But that is the match to watch. It is rather striking looking at the the forecast for the remaining 12 players on the women's side because it is so heavily tilted toward that third quarter. I mean, even Suarez Navarro, who's not favored at all in today's match, I, I have her with an, a 7.8 chance of winning the whole tournament, which is higher than uh, 
well, it's in the same range as, as several of the quarterfinalists in the top half who have gotten one match further along already. Um, now let's, let's look at the bigger picture here. A- aside from Petra Martic and Veronica Cepede-Roig, who are the, the really out-of-left-field players to still be alive in the fourth round, um, is there anyone here, Carl, that has really surprised you in, in getting as far as they have? I think the the biggest surprise is someone who maybe shouldn't be a surprise because she's been really good in the last 12 months and former number one for longer than Venus Williams. That's Caroline Wozniacki. But it's a surprise to me just because she has not been a threat on clay. And I'm especially surprised in that fourth round that she got past Kuznetsova. Kuznetsova, a former French Open champ, also looking pretty good recently. And it just didn't seem likely that, that Wozniacki would even get to that match, let alone win it. So I, I'm impressed she's gotten this far. And now, of all the players outside that, that really strong third quarter, she seems to have about as good a chance of anyone of, of winning the tournament, which would be really out of left field because not only do I have, have we not heard as much in recent years about, oh, Wozniacki, the number one without a slam, just because she was so far from number one for a while, but I don't think anyone expected her, if she was going to break that uh, that drought, to do it at the French Open. Yeah, definitely. And if, if people also didn't expect her to come back this many years after being number one and finally win the slam, I mean, anywhere, but certainly not at, at Roland Garros. And really, all, all four of the players in the top half of the draw are really interesting. I'm glad you mentioned Wozniacki, because that that's the name that I would have, would have come up with as well, in that she's... She got past Kuznetsova. Even the third round match against CC Bellis. I mean, CC Bellis is someone we should probably talk about as well. Um, Wozniacki got kind of lucky that they had to postpone that match because I think it was postponed at at two five in the second set. So Wozniacki won the first set, uh, had almost lost the second set. The next day, Bellis came back. I think Bellis served it out to to win that second set, and then Wozniacki won the third set pretty handily. Um, but it, it, it's certainly possible to imagine that going a different direction if Bellis had been able to capitalize on that momentum and play the third set that night. So there might have been a little luck there. But some other interesting names there. We have Yelena Ostapenko, who got to the final in Charleston earlier this year. Mladenovic, um, who I know you were picking as a, a dark horse, and that's certainly borne out nicely. And Tamia, Tamia Baczynski, who beat Venus Williams yesterday. And according to my clay-specific ELO, uh, Baczynski is actually the pretty big favorite in the top half. I mean, Carl, is, is that how you see it? Do you think Baczynski has an edge against someone like Mladenovic? You know, it, it makes sense to me that she's she's the favorite in terms of clay ELO. I, I still intuitively would think that form on other surfaces counts more than the, the surface-specific one says it does for individual matches, even if not overall. And in that case... I would give Mladenovic a better chance than the algorithm would just because of, of how good she's been in 2017. But she has also had a rough time of it. It's not really surprising or disappointing that she had a tough time against the defending champ, Muguruza, who was playing back into form. But she also had really tough matches earlier on against a couple of Americans, Brady and Rogers, and uh, those went pretty deep into the third, and that also is a bad indicator in terms of time on court for her. So as, as much as I like her chances generally and, and just going forward this season and beyond as, as a young player who seems to be finding her top 10 game, I, I do think Basinski has a, has a better shot. I mean, she 
the one thing that you could hold against her in that Venus match is that, in a way, she she dominated all three sets, except that in the first set, when she was up 5-1, she couldn't close it out, and Venus came back. But then she did close out the next two sets pretty resoundingly, and, and that was an impressive way to finish after squandering the first set. And speaking of Basinski, uh, there was a piece I wrote earlier this week. It was more specifically about uh, Angelique Kerber and, and Andrea Petkovic's comments that Kerber lost because she was making mistakes at basically the wrong time. She was feeling the pressure, making errors at, at the bigger moment. And according to the research I did, it, it showed that Petkovic was right in that intuition that Kerber was, in fact, making more errors on big points than she was making on the less important points. And when I ran the numbers for the last four slams, not including the Roland Garros, but the four before, um, it showed that Bashinsky was actually, I think, second uh, among all the women on tour in terms of timing her unforced errors. That is, she made fewer unforced errors as the points became more important. And it's not really clear how much of that is luck. Certainly some of that is luck, and we're not talking a huge margin. I think she she was 16% better than average or something. So it's not that she can totally cut down the unforced errors when when it's a big moment. But it, it does seem like a valuable skill going into the, the last rounds of a, of a slam to be able to tighten up your game a little bit uh, and, and make fewer errors against players who themselves might be feeling the pressure on making more errors. And with a game like Bashinsky's, especially on clay, it's going to be a, a war of attrition in a lot of ways. And, and she managed to win that against Venus because Venus will make plenty of her share of errors as well. And Bashinsky was able to outlast that. Um, so let's see. Yeah, just, just one thought on that yeah. is it's something that, that we discussed after the article, which which I found fascinating, is to what extent is it just players playing more conservatively? And, you know, are they actually winning the points more often? I think against most players, it, it's it's enough to be hitting fewer unforced errors that that, in the long run, is going to win you more points. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that holds later in slams, and later in tournaments, and just in general against better players, who I think deservedly have the reputation of if you just play it safe in big moments, they will play their usual game, which tends to be one that includes some dominant shots that, that are winners and force errors. I was thinking of a match uh, between Nishikori and Kevin Anderson, I think in Geneva, uh, in the lead-up tournament, where Anderson had a few, I believe, match points in that third set and played them pretty conservatively, and Nishikori played his usual game and hit you know, sizzling ground strokes to, to win the point and eventually the match. Uh, so if if it's the case that Basinski is actually able to play just as aggressively but with fewer errors, well, that's impossible to argue with. If she's more conservative, then maybe against someone like Mondenovich, who can be aggressive and go for her shots in tight moments, maybe that burns her there where it wouldn't against most opponents. Yeah, that, that'll that be interesting to see, and it is worth a follow-up study to see if, if your intuition is right about that, that, that unforced errors and, and winners are going in the same direction. Uh, I, I certainly think it's a, a huge field that deserves a lot more attention to determine how players change their styles at big moments, I mean, whether we're talking in, in tie breaks or on break points or just more generally at moments with with a higher impact on the rest of the match, because... It's unclear to me. Like in, intuitively, it, it, it's tough to determine what the best move is to make. It's, I, I always heard as an amateur that you should dial it back and play a little bit, little bit more conservatively in tie breaks. But a lot of the things that amateurs are told to do 
whether or not it works at the amateur level, it, it might not carry over to the pros because the, obviously the level is so incredibly different. So that's something I hope to find out, but I think we're still several steps away from having any kind of conclusive answers to that. Um, in general, the, the big news on the women's side, of course, is that of the 12 women who are left, uh, none of them have won a Grand Slam. So as you point out with Wozniacki, someone will finally lift their Grand Slam total from zero to one. And we have three players in the draw, Wozniacki, Halep, and Pliskova, who have gotten to a Grand Slam final. Um, I generally am pretty dismissive of arguments based on on um, experience or you know, being familiar with the big courts, the big moments, that sort of thing. But Carl, do you think there's any validity there? Would, would you give an edge to players like Wozniacki, Halep, or Pliskova uh, winning this tournament because they've been there before? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. And I guess we tend to agree on a lot of things, not surprisingly, because this podcast is just our latest of, of long conversations about tennis over the years. But I think in, in a sort of different way than you mean, the fact that Halep has made a French Open final and played really well in it and won is a positive indicator, not in terms of like, oh, it's it's tight in a third set and she's been there before, because all these players have been in tight third sets and big moments, even if not at a slam before. There isn't even that different format that the men have that maybe would be a more persuasive case that it matters. Uh, but Halep, by showing that she came very close before to winning the French Open, to me, has has shown that she can can certainly win it, whereas the others could too, but there's more evidence that, that she was good enough to do it even when there was a player like Maria Sharapova in the draw. I mean, this draw now has no slam winners, but at the start, it didn't really have many who had won at the French Open or won recently uh, to, to to seem like that experience was going to matter for them much anyway. Yeah, the, the draw was, was very wide open. The whole WTA field is very wide open. Uh, the, one amazing stat that I saw yesterday is that there are only two women who have made the third round of the last four majors, and those are Venus Williams and Elena Vesnina. And I mean, Vesnina, I wouldn't have guessed she would be one of the two most consistent players at slams over the last year. But that's really an indicator of how up for grabs everything is. So, Carl, lightning round style, who's, who's your pick to, to come out and win that first slam on the women's side? Well, I would I would sound like a, a boring, typical sports commentator if I was like, well, I picked Svitolina, so I'm sticking with her. But I'm not going to say that. I, I think... Halep now is the favorite. I mean, some of that is, again, just based on the scores right now and the fact that she's more comfortable in her match than Svitolina, who's down a set. But it's also just based on the, the, the big question around Halep coming into the tournament of, of what for, form she would be in, what, what her fitness would be, that question now being gone, and her close now to the quarterfinal, it's, it's hard to see her not as the favorite because there isn't really anyone who is dominated their way into the quarters or into the fourth round in a way that would change that assessment. So unlike with Rafa, where maybe it's 50%, I, I don't see it as more than 20 or 30 with Halep, but uh, I, I do see her now as as the favorite. Um, you know, what, what, and it's funny, though, that you mentioned Vesnina and Serena Williams because those are two 30-somethings, and they're the two most consistent. So uh, it, it'll be fun to see if, like, a player in her 
20s, young 20s can, can pull this out, but then will they actually win a match or two at Wimbledon or not? You know, Muguruza won this tournament last year, having made the Wimbledon final the year before, and we were all very excited, and she's done little at the slam since. So I, I certainly hope the, the first-time winner here remains a factor in upcoming slams. Definitely, and that's one thing, one reason to support someone like Svitolina or Halep or Pliskova going forward, because th- those are all names who are pretty consistently going deep at slams. I mean, Halep has had her, her share of upsets, but all, all those players are, are people you'd favor to get to the second week at Wimbledon and certainly the U.S. Open. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously with you there, both sentimentally and algorithmically, wanting Simona to come through this one and thinking that she will. Uh, for me, the interesting dark horse is Yelena Ostapenko. Um, she's the underdog in the top half and, and a huge underdog overall. But at the same time, um, the way the draws opened up, it could go to anybody hot, and she certainly is that. I mean, she she came through a, a, a three-setter against Sam Stozer very strongly. Uh, Stozer had some very nice things to say about her after the match. Uh, she certainly has the game to score some upsets, uh, both just in general and the fact that she, she plays pretty aggressively. So if things go right, she wouldn't have a problem uh, hitting somebody like Wozniacki or Wysinski off the court. So... It's a long shot, but you're talking about someone in their in their 20s having some success, and Ostapenko is barely there. So it would it would be a major statement for her to win, and it would would be a more interesting story in a lot of the a lot of ways than really anyone else in the draw coming through and winning it all. So Carl, we have only a few minutes left before we need to wrap up this podcast, and we love talking doubles here. The, the men's doubles draw in particular has been extremely upset ridden. What are your what are your big stories from the men's doubles so far? Well, one of them is another disappointing big tournament for the Bryan brothers. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat on retirement watch with them, and Clay probably counterintuitively has been one of their strongest surfaces, as your research has confirmed. So I, I like their chances here, and they they didn't make the third round, I think, and didn't win a set in their second round match. It was one of those classic doubles being a toss-up kind of matches where I think they won about as many receiving points as their opponents, which is usually an indicator of a very tight match, and yet they lost 7-6, 6-3, something like that to Lindsay Groth. So that was a big storyline. I think it's interesting to see uh, Donald Young and Ryan Harrison still in the draw in the quarterfinals. I mean, you know, the American men are gone from singles after Isner lost to Kachanov, and that would have you know been happened the day before if not for uh, rain delay to that match. So we've got we've got two unlikely American men as the last men standing in the in the professional draws, or at least not counting mixed doubles, which I which I like to count. Um, so so that's um, that's a funny thing to see. And then, you know, you also flagged there's Paolo Lorenzi, of all people, who isn't particularly great at doubles um, there in the in the quarters, perhaps because he chose a better partner than usual. <laughs> yeah, he's he's played quite a bit with Albert Ramos, who we talked about a few, few weeks ago as the worst doubles player on tour. But uh, Lorenzi's partner this week is Rogerio Dutrasilva, who's from Brazil, and I, if I remember right, I, I don't have the numbers handy, but I don't think Dutra Silva is, is, shows up very high on the doubles rankings either. So it might just be some luck or, or definitely surface preference. And surface preference is a bigger story in doubles than a, a lot of people give it credit for. 
I think. Um, as you point out, Carl, I, I did I did run the numbers. There's an article I posted a few days ago with 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 some limited ELO ratings on clay for men's doubles, and it did show the Bryan brothers at the top. Uh, another team that was near the top was Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah, who have had a lot of double success in the past. They're only the 16th seed this year, but I rate them as, the, I think, the third best team in the draw on clay, and they're still in there. And another very clay-favoring team is Julio Peralta, who plays almost exclusively on clay, and Horacio Zavallos, who just lost in the singles yesterday to Dominic Team. Um, another team that you wouldn't really favor them in a slam on hard courts, or certainly not on grass, but on clay, they'll, they'd be a factor, and they indeed have scored an upset getting this far, and that'll make for a very interesting quarterfinal match at the top of the draw, Cabal Farah versus Peralta Zavallos. Um, it, it's tough to pick a team to win this draw because doubles can be so unpredictable, but if you are going to go with the, with the surface preference, then whoever comes out of that match at the top of the draw, they, they might be your favorites. Yeah, I think it's also notable that there's, you mentioned Zabios went deep in singles and lost in the fourth round, and there's another guy in that doubles draw who's still alive in singles in Verdasco. So um, not often that you get, especially in men's, it happens much more in women's, that you get a guy uh, deep in singles and doubles at a tournament. So it'll be interesting to see if Verdasco, uh, how, he, how he balances that. I mean, I'm sure his major, major priority is singles, but he's also going to be the underdog probably against Kei Nishikori. So We'll see if he uh, then you know stays strong and maybe wins the doubles draw. Yeah, that would that would be a great story. I mean, I, I am interested to see that singles match between Verdasco and Nishikori because Nishikori is, as always, struggling with his health. Um, if if he hadn't been saved by uh, by the rain, I believe against Hyun Chung, uh, he might have lost that match. And as it was, it went to five sets against a player who normally you'd expect him to beat easily. And Verdasco, of course. Uh, can be great, can be horrible on any given day, but that's the sort of match you can imagine turning into a four-and-a-half-hour battle uh, and, and going five sets, which, as you point out, could have some impact on the doubles draw as well. So, Carl, I know we need to wrap things up, but any final thoughts as we enter the second week of the Slam? Watch mixed doubles. It's always a good time. Fast matches with the with the wild format that the ATP and WTA use during their tour-level doubles event, so not a big time commitment. You get to see such players as Olympic silver medalist Rajiv Ram, a favorite of mine. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I hope that we have some, some great matches ahead of us. I, I can't think of too many on the men's side. There have been some really exciting women's ones so far, uh, but hope, hoping that with so many of the favorites in both draws still around, even though we keep describing the women's is wide open. It, most of the the biggest favorites are alive, and I don't think either of us thought Kerber was one of them. So not such a big shock that the number one isn't there. But most of the players, other than her, we expected to be there are. So there should be some real classics. Already have been some good ones on the women's side. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad you mentioned mixed doubles. Uh, the challenge, of course, is always finding a way to watch it before the final. Uh, I was sad to see that Martina Hingis and Leander Pays crashed out in the first round. That's if I'm allowed to have a favorite mixed doubles team, they're definitely number one. Um, but yeah, always some interesting names to watch there. And and as you point out, the the women's draw has shaped up kind of as expected. That the big names who have lost, even though they they make the news, uh, 
pretty much as expected. Kerber and uh, Johanna Kanta, of course, not not people who we expected to be factors. And as long as Svitolina pulls out of her match right now, which is still looking rather questionable against Petra Martic, uh, most of the favorites are indeed going to factor in the second week. So, Carl, thank you as always for joining me. Uh, Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoy the second week of 2017 French Open.